June of 2020, our class had its first session. Reading classic novels soon became our one obsession. With COVID-19 raging, we had nowhere we could go. So we zoomed in and recorded this stupid fucking show. We're reading books. We're killing trees. Our housemates and our spouses are saying stop it please. We're reading books. We're killing cedars. At Miss Charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers. Charlotte is our teacher and she's very optimistic that she can teach us something, even something quite simplistic. She's really quite an expert, has a dog named Mr. Darcy. But if she thinks we can learn, she's got her head right up her arsey. We're reading books, we're killing trees. Our housemates and our spouses are saying, Stop it, please, we're reading books. We're killing cedars at Miss Charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers. Daniel plays with puppets, which is just a little weird. He also is Canadian and has a luscious beard. Jerry has just graduated university, so she's the baby of this podcast, don't you see? Andrew is the oldest and has trouble concentrating. He thinks he's pretty funny, but his sense of humor is grating. Emmy is a doctor, so she knows things quite obscure, but her degree's in agriculture, so she mostly knows me more. We're reading books until we're sore. My eyes! We're answering Miss Charlotte and competing for a score. Ask us why we're doing this, we really couldn't say. But listen and just maybe you'll enjoy it anyway. We're reading books, we're killing trees. Our housemates and our spouses are saying, stop it. to Miss Charlotte's Finishing School for Wayward Readers, a podcast about the of Victorian literature. This is episode 11. It is a poor conclusion, is it not? Miss Charlotte's Finishing School for Wayward Readers is an audio production of the Yokohama Theatre Group or YTG, a non-profit theatre company based in Japan. <gasps> if you want to support the theatrical work that we do, you can head over to ytg.jp and click the support button. On this show, we have four wayward readers, including myself. Each episode, we sit down, talk about the week's assigned chapters, make presentations, which we call reader responses, and answer questions to compete for points. Our domina, slow with the praise and quick with the lash, is Miss Charlotte Sampson. Good morning, class. The reader with the most points at the end of the show will be dubbed Teacher's Pet, and the reader with the lowest score, sometimes in the negative numbers, will wear the dunce cap. It is only an imaginary dunce cap, but it contains a rare isotope called stupidium, which heats up in the presence of an idiot's brain, so that the wearer is constantly wiping sweat out of his eyes. Or maybe that's just the canto play in summer that is the cause of my inability to see straight or use a camera without fogging up the viewfinder, goddammit. I hope tonight I finally get to take the damn hat off. When we complete our reading of Wuthering Heights, all these points will be totaled and the winner will get... Ay caramba, we need to figure this out soon. Our wayward readers are, in order of Kemptness, Juriito, Indispensable Assistant Artistic Director of the Yokohama Theatre Group. Am I supposed to comment? Yes, you're supposed to... What does Kemptness mean? Kemptness. It means how kempt you are. What is kempt? That you are, like, tidy. Oh, thank you. I guess that's my vocabulary corner for tonight. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Next, we have Emmy Doe, who looks far more put together than she deserves to, given how much running up mountains she does. And followed by Daniel Wishes, who is rather scruffy, even for a puppeteer. Yes. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> and finally, myself, who would have overtaken Daniel if it were not for the fact that I've got a real doozy of a COVID-19 hairdo right now. Seriously, it looks like a black cat threw up a hairball on my head. Of course, Miss Charlotte Sampson herself is impeccably put together, but that just goes without saying. Welcome, everyone. Let's get reading. It is time for the Daniel Wishes summary, chapter summary of Wuthering Heights, copyright trademark 2020. Thank you, Andrew. Well, it's been a long and wild ride, but we finally arrived. The final two chapters of Wuthering Heights. We have finally reached the highly anticipated and long-awaited finale. Shocking secrets will be revealed. Twists will be turns and turns will be twisted. Heights will be wuthered. Everything that's happened up until now has all been leading up to this epic payoff. And now, the shocking conclusion that will forever change your view of Wuthering Heights. Chapter 33. Kathy and Joseph have an argument <laughs> about gardening. Chapter 34. <laughs> Heathcliff dies, like we already mentioned a couple chapters ago. Nobody really knows why. Harridan and Kathy are getting married. Oh, but I, I think we mentioned that already, too. Never mind. The end. Also, maybe there's ghosts. <laughs> Thank you for that, oh. Daniel. That, yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty much it. <laughs> So I hope you listeners aren't too disappointed, but there will be no vocab corner uh, this week. Uh, nothing read, nothing super jumped out at me uh, while I was reading. There are a couple of dialect words in there, but honestly, I was just slammed this week. Uh, and there was nothing that jumped off the page, so I didn't go hunting because I didn't want to go looking for trouble. So we're going to move right into the reader response, uh, which is being done by me. And I believe the format, I hope the format, given that I've written it now, was supposed to be a report given by someone from 2000 years in the future. All right. All so right. what does the future think of the end of Wuthering Heights? Here we go. Greetings, fellow post-humans. I am Gleepglorp447. My pronouns are... Today, I will be making my report on chapters 33 and 34 of Wuthering Heights a novel written deep in the poop ages. Instead of transmitting my report directly to your brains, with the permission of Professor Zalactrix McQuee Wink Emoji, I will be delivering it much as they would have done two millennia ago, when unaugmented humans, one, spoke words aloud, two, defecated into holes of various kinds, some filled with water, three, had genders, and four, still performed the sexing. Sometimes all at once, we are told. I will be speaking in the dead language of English, which I have been studying for approximately a week, as a friendly nod to the fact that this book was originally written in the English. Of course, I have read the novel Wuthering Heights in this original language. There is much in chapters 33 and 34 that perturbs me. Throughout this book, I have not been able to understand why any of the characters depicted within behave as they do. These chapters offer no less puzzlement to me. Nowadays, we live in peace with each other and have no conflict. But young Catherine and Harriton, having resolved their conflict with each other in the preceding chapter, now come into conflict with, conflict with the servant Joseph, and the man who has taken everything from them, Heathcliff. Joseph is disturbed because the two young people dig up some shrub friends he was very fond of. 
Shrubs are some of the most lovely companions to share the world with us, and I am very happy we have recently granted them the right to vote. In this time, the plight of the shrub went mostly unrecognized, but in Joseph we see a man very much ahead of his time. Certainly, the shrubs should have been consulted on any decision to relocate them. Although only mentioned in passing, and not a main theme of this novel, I think it shows that despite his gruff exterior, Joseph, at heart, cares deeply about the civil rights of his plant brethren. But let us not get distracted. As we learned in earlier chapters, Heathcliff wants to have his revenge, a concept almost completely foreign to us, but outside the scope of this report, so please access the hypernet to experience it for yourself. It is exhilarating and terrifying. I murdered three of our classmates before I was incapacitated by the bubble pods. Ufath523, GIF comment, and Dridridra, I apologize for any inconvenience that you experienced before being recombobulated. So, I cannot understand why Heathcliff suddenly loses his motivation to hurt everyone. In the poop ages, people did get more fatigued as they grew older. It was called aging. It sounds unpleasant, but from my understanding, Heathcliff was not an elderly man at this point. There is some notion that he experienced something while walking out of doors that changed him. Some contemporary analysis I have read suggests that he met the ghost of young Catherine's mother, and this became the only thing he cared about. The book does mention here how much both young Catherine and Harriton bear certain resemblances to her, and how this upsets Heathcliff. Then he remarks that Harriton also resembles himself, which also disturbs him. It is a pity that Heathcliff could not have gone to the local realign mental realignment booth, because it did not exist yet, of course. Ha! 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 That was a joke. Incidentally, having read this book, I am not sure that jokes existed yet either. In any case, Heathcliff behaves illogically. He stops consuming, masticating, swallowing, digesting, and excreting food into a receptacle. Remember that in these times, the people did not photosynthesize, and if they did not eat food and or excrete waste, they would undergo the death process. Because this was before the invention of external brain substrates, after the death process, there was no recombobulation possible. So although not consuming nutrients, extracting the necessary elements from them, and ejecting the remainder as a stinky brown solid sounds perfectly logical to us, anyone in that time who did not do so would experience the death process, or a permaban, uh, or just death as they called it. For them, a permanent state. If you are permabanned in this way, you experience nothing. Why would you desire this condition? There is no chance for improving your life, or reconciling yourself with others, or for advocating for the voting rights of your shrub friends. In fact, Heathcliff seems happy. It is most confounding. Well, as you can imagine, he is permabanned, and as he requests, he is buried next to Catherine, who is the mother of the younger Catherine, this is confusing. In the poop ages, there was no uniqueness requirement for names. He uh, is permabanned, as I said. He experiences nothing. My understanding is that there were many food shortages in this time. Why not convert his body to nutritious paste to feed others? What a selfish man. Oh, I seem to be out of time. Professor Zelactrix McWee Winkemoji grows impatient. Yes, I understand that the spoken word takes much more time than direct brain transmission. There is much more I could talk about, including Heathcliff's legacy as a boogeyman of sorts which, as I understand it, is a sort of ghost made out of nasal mucus that once attacked actor and comedian Bill Murray. But I will simply sum up. Surprisingly to me, despite the fact that this story takes place during the poop ages, when people excreted several times a day, there is no mention of it at all in Wuthering Heights. 
Was author Emily Bronte looking toward the future? Was she gazing at us and seeing a world with no poop, no sexing, and no tacos? I leave you with this final thought. Was the point of her novel, we live in poopy times, and one day, as people learn to change, those times will become less poopy until there is no poop at all? Perhaps. And now, like Lockwood, I will slip out the back entrance here before things get awkward. Yay! Wow. Here's to a poopy-free future. <laughs> there were some things I liked about that. I think with all of the shrub discourse, you sort of refer obliquely to a very naughty, thorny problem in literary criticism, which is the tendency, I would say the inescapable tendency to some degree, to read the past through the lens of the present. Now, of course, in speculative fiction, you have to imagine that you are in the future. So you have sort of the double problem of reading the past from your vision of the future as understood from the lens of the present. So, in a sense, you have two very tricky timeframes to have to, to, to wrestle with. And the reason that I separated out the shrub discourse as a good example of this is that when we try to look at a piece of literature from the past, it is unavoidable that our condition in the present is going to have some impact on what we think of the past work of literature. And when issues such as shrub rights are in, in question, and it, it sounds a little bit absurd to think of shrubs having rights, but think about, for example, the way that dogs are treated in Wuthering Heights. Now, I will posit that the issue of animal cruelty is a discourse that would not have been the same in the 19th century. They would have understood extreme examples of cruelty, but not quite to the same degree that, or same importance that we would ascribe it. And their threshold for cruelty to animals would have been a lot higher than ours is. I mean... Emily Bronte herself once beat the shit out of her own dog. <laughs> and what's remarkable about that isn't that people were like, oh, I can't believe it, Emily. Beat up her dog. That's terrible. They were more like, wow, I can't believe that tiny, scrawny Emily Bronte beat up that big, giant dog. Wow, usually <laughs> it's big, burly dudes who are beating up dogs. This, is, this, is, this just goes <laughs> to show what strength of spirit she had. So by alluding to the... the, the the shrubs as having some some special status you are kind of i felt obliquely and heck maybe unconsciously i don't know referring to that conundrum of having to read the past through the lens of the present so of course if you're putting it in the future an easy way to do so is to pick something absurd like shrubs in the future, humans will have learned how to photosynthesize, so maybe we have a closer connection with our shrub cousins. I don't know. I don't know what your rationale for that was, but I think that was a good instinct on your part. Well, I thought that, I mean, I was thinking like, okay, so it's 2,000 years in the future, and I'm like, well, what do we know? What would we think of the people 2,000 years ago if we had a lot of written records, which we don't have a great number of them? Like, 2,000 years ago, we basically, basically have just a few cultures and if you look at something even like, because we did Antigone last year, which is 2,400 years old. I mean, there's just, 
it's sometimes hard to wrap your mind around some of that and some of the the characters' attitudes towards things. And that was even kind of from our cultural sort of lineage. And if you imagine like then switching to a culture that's not something that's not a direct sort of progenitor of your own culture and how like, you know, even going back 200 years, it's confusing enough, but going back 2000 years, that's nuts, you know? And you think about things like, I mean, Beowulf is mind bogglingly weird and that's not 2000 years ago. It's less than 2000 years ago. Because for me, the big action in those last two chapters is, you know, other than other than like the, you know, Heath, you know, what happens to Heathcliff, it's the shrubs. That's like it triggers a whole bunch of stuff. And yeah, Joseph has this weird thing. He threatens to quit over the shrubs. And I was like, well, that seemed that seems like an interesting thing to like, how would someone interpret that if they didn't know the context? They didn't if they didn't fully understand the context. So that that's why the shrubs. So, 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 yeah, that's I like the shrubs. The shrubs were good. Um, that was my favorite part too. <laughs> but I gotta take issue with. I think you leaned too heavily into the caricature of sci-fi tropes with the Gleep Glorps and whatnot. You really couldn't have been any more subtle than that. <laughs> I mean, you really had to broadcast, we are in the future because I talk with a robot voice and my name is Gleeplorp. I forget what your character's name was already. It was Gleeplorp. Yeah, it no, was Gleeplorp. Right. Right. Wow, that, was that's, that's incredibly inane, Andrew. And also, <laughs> Andrew, a pronouns joke in the year of our Lord 2020. That was that was a reference to like the fact that they actually live in, he's weird, but they live in a utopia. Like... You can be whatever the hell ever you want. Like, who cares? They're beyond that. Did you That's have sort of what to is. use a horrible screeching modem noise for it, though? <laughs> did you really? Did I you just really something have to? Sound like language. Because <sighs> we've also we've also said that they don't speak language, right? So maybe Gleepthorpe's pronouns are not pronounceable in English. For the listeners at home, last time we tried to record this segment, that horrible screeching modem noise basically triggered a migraine that i get due to some post concussion syndrome and we ended up having to reschedule the recording it was pretty awful so i so if we all sound different after the cut i I gave you a c plus which was a lower grade than i than i would have just out of spite (laughs) though i'm feeling a lot better this week so maybe i don't know I really did like the shrub stuff. So I'll just give you, I'll, I'll give you a B minus. How, how's that? Super. Thank you. <laughs> I guess the next thing is we'll just throw it over to Miss Charlotte for the discussion questions and then she'll throw it back at us and then we'll throw it back. It'll be like a, never mind. Go on. Just do the. So if you look at chapter 33, this is sort of after the big blowout with the shrubs when Harriton and Kathy confront Heathcliff. So this is after Heathcliff has told Kathy, you must learn to avoid putting me in a passion or I shall really murder you sometime. Go with Mrs. Dean and keep with her and confine your insolence to her ears. As to Hareton Earnshaw, if I see him listen to you, I'll send him seeking his bread where he can get it. Your love will make him an outcast and a beggar. Nellie, take her and leave me, all of you, leave me, etc., etc., And then we have a short paragraph, I led my young lady out, and then the one that I want to signal out for specific discussion is the paragraph beginning, the two new friends established themselves in the house during his absence. Can I get a volunteer to read that full paragraph, actually? Oh, I found it. 
Okay. Would you like to read, Judy? Sure. Um, the two new friends established themselves in the house during his absence, where Herd Harrison sternly cheeked his cousin on her offering a revelation of her father-in-law's conduct to his father. He said he wouldn't suffer a word to be uttered in his disparagement. If he were the devil, it didn't signify. He would stand by him, and he'd rather sh he'd rather she would abuse himself as she used to than begin on Mr. Heathcliff. Catherine was waxing cross at this, but he found means to make her hold her tongue by asking how she would like him to speak ill of her father. Then she comprehended that Earnshaw took the master's reputation home to himself and was attached by ties stronger than reason could break chains, forged by habit, which it would be cruel to attempt to loosen. She showed a good heart thenceforth in avoiding both comp complaints and expressions of antipathy concerning Heathcliff and confessed to me her, so her sorrow that she had endeavored to raise a bad spirit between him and Harrison. Indeed, I don't believe she was ever breathed a syllable in the latter's hearing against her oppressor since. Thank you, Judy. What I want to discuss today is Harriton's relationship to Heathcliff and the state that it is at the end of the novel. And what I want to try to tease out is, first of all, how do we characterize their relationship? And second of all, what... What can be gleaned from the way their relationship evolves or doesn't evolve over the course of the novel? What are some of the ways in which their relationship has changed? What are the ways in which their relationship has stayed the same? And what are the ways this passage might suggest are the ways in which Harriton's opinion of Heathcliff might never change, at least not altogether? So a lot of things to unpack in this one passage. Also, we're sort of going back to the entire novel up to this point. We're at the end of the novel. There's going to be stuff that will only make sense in retrospect. And I feel like the nature of Harriton and Heathcliff's relationship is one of those things. Well, I mean, there is the fact that he basically likens Heathcliff as a father. Like, he, he believes him to be sort of this father figure in his life. And that makes sense from the moment that Heathcliff kind of saved him from death from his own biological father throwing him down the stairs so or dropping him down off the banister or whatever that was. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, even though we only see this kind of evil person in Heathcliff, um, that there is a character that has always looked up to him as a father is kind of interesting. So I'm waiting on Andrew for you to totally dismantle what I just said, as you always do. But why? No, I, I, <laughs> I, I say I don't think I don't think the relationship changes very much. I think Emmy nailed it with like from the moment Heathcliff catches Harriton and re the time regrets it. He's kind of he come kind of becomes his protector, which puts him in a father role. But I, I feel like it's just been it's just been like a father son relationship all the way through, and he's the only one who doesn't really he doesn't really he doesn't he's like the only one that Heathcliff doesn't ab like abuse from his point of view anyway. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it I don't know if it's evolved. I think it's been pretty much the same. It's like he was. I guess if you want to say it's evolved, he doesn't need to be a protector anymore. Heathcliff's not his protector, but I think that put him pretty firmly in a father role, and he's like 
he's kind of like protecting him from the outside world, although, you know, to Harriton's detriment, but Harriton's not aware of that. And he doesn't seem to resent it. He's the one who says to Kathy, well, you wouldn't want me to say bad stuff about your father, right? Mm -hmm. Implying that Heathcliff is his father. Like that's, it's right in the text. Mm -hmm. So I know, I think you're right. That's exactly, exactly it. Okay. Anything to add or dissenting opinions from either Judy or Daniel? You know, people who have abusive parents still love them. Mm. Did we ever see Harriton kind of, well, I guess he didn't speak against Heathcliff, but when he stood up for Kathy, as in, I don't remember him saying anything against Heathcliff or not. Was that new? Yeah, I mean, that was new, but who did he have to stand up for before, I yeah, guess? I guess that's the only evolution that I've noticed. Yeah, and it's, yeah, no, that's actually, that's a good point. I think, I think we missed that. Mm. And I think, but he doesn't stand up like super strongly. Right. Right. He doesn't stand up as much as Kathy would like him to. Right. Kathy, Kathy seems to almost want like a violent altercation between the two of them. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't give her that. But he's, 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 he's not happy. He's not happy about the conflict. He doesn't even seem to react to like Heathcliff threatening to like throw him out onto the street in the, a couple paragraphs up yeah. or a paragraph up. So does he think that's just bluster or just he thinks it's, yeah, I don't know what he's thinking. This is one of those moments where I think we run into what is both the problem and also the potential strength of just the inescapable fact that whenever we read a text, we to some degree read it through the lens of the present. Daniel, you brought up the term abusive. Heathcliff as sort of an abusive pseudo-parent. And what I like about this passage is that it paints a true enough-to-life picture of some of the ways in which the abused party in an abusive relationship maintains a sort of loyalty to their abuser. That, for Harriton, as it is for other abused children with abusive parents, or in this case, adoptive or sort of surrogate parents, he has this, this reticence to confront Heathcliff or to push back over what everyone else sees as an intensely, intensely abusive relationship. Now, the problem with that is that they did not have a term comparable to, to what we call abuse. I mean, they had the word abuse, but it wasn't in the specific sense of physical or psychological imposition of one's will and dominance over another person. It did not have that connotation. And the whole discourse that we have access to of abusive relationships was not part of the discourse when Emily Bronte was writing. So what do we do with a passage like this? Because it's, it, it's pretty cut and dry for us with more sensitivity to the discourse surrounding abusive relationships with the knowledge that we have from from psychology in terms of how abuse happens and i mean if you were to break it down heathcliff's abuse of harriton is in some ways as grotesque as it is kind of textbook i mean he restricts what harriton is able to learn about the world, he keeps him on such a tight leash that Harriton never really fully realizes the extent to which he is being abused. So it's an excellent description of how abusive behavior and abusive relationships work, 
before we have much of a, a sociocultural or psychological discourse or, or set of terminology to define what abuse is. The problem is, can we trust that the mid-19th century readership of the day would have clued in on this aspect of abusive relationships in the same way that maybe we are attenuated to? And that's the trouble with doing literary criticism sometimes, is that you have to both be aware of what things we might know, or, or believe we know, about the human condition, and can find in earlier works of literature that the people who wrote it might themselves not have been fully aware of, or would have used a different set of terms to talk about it. And it can be tricky sometimes not to do literary criticism in a way that suggests that Emily Bronte was somehow prescient that in the next 100, 150 or so years, we would develop a whole set of language for talking about abusive relationships. We just cannot inscribe onto the past the systems for knowing stuff, the epistemology of the present. So just because we know or have, let's say, a, a, a more, I don't want to say advanced, but let's say we have a more robust discourse about the way abusive relationships work than Emily Bronte would have had back then. Nevertheless, I mean, I feel like this paragraph kind of nails it to a T. So how do we talk about passages where we find contemporary or modern-day phenomena, or at least that we recognize using terminology from the present, in works of literature from the past? And, gosh, I don't have an answer to that question. Well, but, does, uh, I mean, I oh. yeah. Can you t can you if you want to take a stab at it? Because this is this is a the the issue of historicity of discourse is a pretty big problem. So yeah, Emmy. Well, my question was, I wonder if if Emily Bronte actually knew people in her life that were in a similar situation to Harriet. Maybe not the exact same with a character like Heathcliff, but where she was mystified or baffled by their continued devotion to a parental figure that was actually quite cruel to them. Um, and so this would be kind of a, a case study or like an example of a phenomenon that later we were able to derive a pattern from, but she was actually observing in, in the first person, you know, or else, I don't know, yeah, extremely insightful on her part, part or she knew, I don't know, so she, <laughs> yeah. To question anyway. No, I think that I think that makes sense because, like you know, what what Daniel referenced is you know we have words for it now, but it's an it's a psychological phenomenon. It's not like the phenomenon didn't exist back then, and you could observe it in people, right? It was observable. Just we didn't have, as Charlotte said, we didn't have the vocabulary for it. But it is certainly reasonable to make that observation without having to have any kind of foresight into it. That sometimes sometimes people, you know, may, it, you know, Stockholm syndrome existed before the event that we named Stockholm syndrome after, you know, people, the cap, like people sympathizing with their captors. That's, that's something that happened. That's, you know, it's the way we're wired. The, the, the more neutral term for that is trauma bonding. Okay. Which is sort of when an abuser deliberately inflicts trauma on their abused person. I don't know. I, I'm not sure. Abusee? Victim? Victim. Yeah. We often hear about it in context of romantic relationships. But it can also happen in cases of child abuse, where repeated 
re-inscription of the trauma itself kind of normalizes the trauma. It normalizes it as just the state of the world. And the issue with Harriton towards the end of the novel is that he is really beginning to learn for, it seems like, the first time, the degree to which he has been abused. And he's beginning to realize that there is another world outside of the one that Heathcliff has deliberately constructed for him. So as Harriton begins to awaken to the new possibilities of this world that really Kathy has opened up to him, there's going to be some friction between him and Heathcliff when he begins to realize the enormity of what Heathcliff has done. And yet, Harriton does not want to hear Kathy speak ill of him. Well, I mean, he may he may understand what's being done, but he may be he may rationalize the motivation for it, right? If Heathcliff is stood in as like a protector, then you know he's trying to protect Harriton from stuff, maybe misguidedly. Like you know, there's ways to rationalize that. So I think that's where he is when we're when like at the end of the book. I mean, maybe he changes later, but I think he's still he's still in the at the stage where he can rationalize it. Any other thoughts from the class? Well, and, and Heathcliff is just not around, right? So, I mean, I guess, like, confront Heathcliff about about these issues as they come up. Not that he, but then, yeah, I'm correcting myself because I don't think he would have anyway. That's not the nature of their relationship, but. You don't think long, heartfelt chats are the nature <laughs> of their relationship? <laughs> they sit there and they sort of bond over tea and scones. <laughs> talk about their innermost feelings they both seem they both seem like very you know emotionally open and comfortable people don't they now i'm just sort of picturing harriton just reflecting fondly on the good times with heathcliff (laughs) remember when we used to sit together and stare at the wall and you'd glower good times good times well does harriton ever really get any future chances to confront heathcliff no not really. This is kind of the one and only time that there that we see him directly challenge Heathcliff in any sort of way. And even at that, it comes with this rider that, okay, I'll stand up for you this one time, Kathy, but just just don't badmouth him. How does that make us feel? Like, does that sit right with us? How do we feel about that? Well, it's kind of the same feeling that you have when somebody is making like a bad choice right like when somebody is getting into a bad relationship or chooses to stay with somebody that you know is wrong for them um you're like oh this is your chance you're like she's telling you this thing that you didn't know and like come to terms with it and you can take this guy he's weak (laughs) just punch him out but you also empathize with the fact that he's he spent his entire life just trying not to provoke this guy, right? Like trying to please him and seeking validation and constantly being told that he's not good enough and yet not being given the tools or the resources to actually better himself. So yeah, it's a lot of emotions and you feel, yeah, you just feel bad for him. Does Heathcliff tell him that he's not good enough? Like aside from his just sort of snarky snarkiness in general, my impression is he was basically depriving Harriton of stuff, but not like being particularly mean about it because he didn't need to be. It's the same the same way that Edgar puts Kathy into her little birdcage of a little like prison. Ooh. You know, Heathcliff does the same thing to Harriton and both of them accept it. 
Do you think? I mean, he was like, he told Harrington that he was useless for not being able to woo Kathy properly. Did yeah. He? Yeah. But I mean, uh, that was pretty that, mild. That was Linton. All right. Did he not also make a comment to Harrington as well at one point, though? I felt like in that same scene, he was talking about. Yeah, he did it. He did it to. He did it to both of them a little bit, I think. But regardless, I, again, that could just be seen, again, from Harrington's point of view, that's like, that's your father who's not necessarily a softy, you know, touchy-feely guy, you know, going, oh, you should go get her, kind of thing, mm-hmm. as opposed to mean. I just don't think, I think that's the thing, is that in Harrington's life, Heathcliff was the one who was kind. Joseph's a religious nut. I mean, they get along, but, he, you know, they get along. But, like, his, phone, his father was like a, was an asshole, like a raging asshole abusive like like abusive in like a physical sense and again heathcliff was the protector so again he didn't need to be mean to get what he wanted Mm. out of that relationship right to turn Mm -hmm. harriton into what he wanted to turn him into he didn't need to be Mm. the abuse is what he turned harriton into not what he not like what he did to harriton like by punching him or screaming at him or anything like that Mm. Mm -hmm. it's more it's kind of more subtle than what he does to a lot of the other characters And that's why I think it's harder for Harriton to like, you know, it's it's hard for him, especially at this point. Like, we're not at the point where he's completely reinvented himself yet, where he's been able to like climb out of the hole that he's in. Mm-hmm. So I, he doesn't have the perspective. He, do, he just doesn't have the perspective yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see that. And I'm sure there's a sense of gratitude to like Heath from Heathcliff saving him from his father. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the one time we saw that he probably doesn't remember, and then all the other times that we didn't see, but that are referenced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair. Yeah, I'm probably just projecting my dislike of Heathcliff. <laughs> yeah, Heathcliff is not a nice, not a nice guy. But I, I would compare the abuse that Heathcliff. If you, if you compare the abuse that Heathcliff puts Harrington through to what, how Edgar controls Kathy's life, I think they're actually way more similar than you would probably think. Just, I mean, I didn't think of it. This is just an idea I had right now. But it, it's really similar what mm. they do. I mean, Edgar doesn't deny Kathy an education, but he denies her society. Like, I get the impression he doesn't, he won't even let her go to church, right? Like, mm. she doesn't seem to have any social life outside of the Grange mm. with, like, him and the servants. Mm-hmm. And, like, then a little bit with Linton. And that, th- that's it. Well, this is a good time to have a little impromptu question. Mm. Why do you think, given that, and, and actually, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a couple of points for that, Andrew, because this is... This is a good observation, and it's a little, it, it's kind of salient. Why do you think, you know, given that these two characters are both very circumscribed in their experience, they're both sort of kept, they're both in some sense imprisoned, one has a much more gilded cage than the other, nevertheless, why do you think the text characterizes the two father figures, the act, Kathy's actual father, Edgar Linton, and Harriton's surrogate father, Heathcliff. Why does the text characterize their characters with regard to their their children or their ward so differently? I have, I have a theory, but Daniel, you've been like super quiet. Do you have any ideas? Uh, it's a literary device. Sorry, I didn't have a I, I didn't have a good answer. Okay, that's okay, Daniel. <laughs> that's like that's like the literary equivalent of the Sunday school answer. Uh, Jesus did I mean, it. I don't know. I didn't have a good answer. <laughs> like, but I was whatever question. And, like, you cannot just answer, oh, it was a literary device. Like, what about Andrew going like, oh, I think, I think Dan over at the other desk has the answer. No, sorry. <laughs> I, set, I, I set him up. I set him up. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Judy, do you have anything to add as well? Mm, 
father-son relationship. Well, I also, well, isn't when Heathcliff started taking care of Hareton, did it, it come from a place where he kind of wanted revenge on Hermione? And then maybe grown to something more than that, like an actual relationship that may be similar to a father-son relationship in their own way. But I, I think maybe, I, I remember that it came from a place of more hate, hatred kind of feeling. Yeah, Heathcliff, and this is sort of getting to, okay, this was a little bit of a leading question, I will admit. I was bringing it to a, to a certain point. Heathcliff's big confession of his motive is in that big long monologue that I think we discussed way back when, like episode six or seven, maybe, as reported to us by Nellie Dean. Mm -hmm. Nellie Dean's the one telling the story. So which of these two dudes do you think she's more likely to favor in the way that she describes their characters? Now, this is not suggesting that Edgar Linton was some secret abusive monster. But there was a little bit of, uh, of subtle abuse, at the very least, in the way that he keeps Kathy under lock and key. Like, that is a form of abuse, restricting one's freedom of, uh, of movement. Now, again, I want to be careful here. A father circumscribing the places and circumstances under which his daughter can go places wouldn't have been as weird in the 19th century as it is for us. We can more readily recognize how restricting a child's freedom to go where they wish can be abusive. Wouldn't have been quite so transparent to a Victorian readership. They would not have been sort of primed to look out for this sort of thing. But it's a good way of contrasting those two characters, because we've been talking about the gothic genre throughout, and one of the tropes that comes up in gothic literature is doubling. The notion that characters will have a sort of very obvious foil, or, or, or double, in some cases even like a doppelganger almost, whose depravities in some sense reflect the, the more subtle versions that, that occur in other characters. So if we can think of Heathcliff as just being a more grotesque version of Edgar Linton's own circumscription of uh, of Catherine's freedom, then we can kind of we can kind of maybe tease out a reading where a lot of the way we think and feel about these characters comes not necessarily from the circumstances that they find themselves in, but from the way that Nellie Dean frames them. We're told throughout that Edgar Linton is this this great guy, but maybe he wasn't so great in all dimensions. And maybe the more we look at Heathcliff's excesses in terms of how he abuses Harriton, we kind of also have to face the fact that Edgar Linton was not exactly dad of the year either. I just think that for somebody who was so quiet and spent most of her time in virtual social isolation, with the exception of her family and the odd person she corresponded with, which was very few people, Emily Bronte was a pretty keen observer of the human condition, and to me that just compounds the puzzle that is Emily Bronte, because this subtlety in the way that people are characterized and the ways that the reporting of one's character can be somewhat misleading are not something you would expect from somebody who lived as a recluse most of, the, most of her life. I still don't know what to do with Emily Bronte. Scholars still don't know what to do with Emily Bronte. And 
when we get into the Bronte bite, huh? Neat little segue. The people of her day didn't know what to do with, well, first of all, didn't know what to do with Ellis Bell, the, the, the pseudonym she published under, and certainly didn't know what to do once they realized that this was written by a woman. There was no real conceptual category to fit either Wuthering Heights or Emily Bronte into. Both the book and author were seen as such singular things. She was such a singular person. Trying to figure out what Emily Bronte meant in Wuthering Heights, it's a very quixotic project. It's almost easier to interpret Wuthering Heights by how much it, to this day, mystifies us. I mean, I think it's mystifying in an impressive way. Doesn't mean I like the book. I mean, you can think books are good without necessarily liking them. Anyway, that's my final, that's my final thought on, on that passage. Was there anything anyone wanted to add before we move on? Can we bookmark that thought of um, whether or not this was a good book for our overall yeah let's 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 save that discussion for for next because yeah i have a lot to say about that (laughs) anyway uh should we move on if you're feeling hungry but food's not quite right because only knowledge will satiate your appetite you don't need to watch ted talks all night just wrap your brain lips around a bronte bite We'll take that. Brain lips. I was proud of myself for coining that term. Brain lips. You can you can have that. So today's Bronte <laughs> Today's Bronte Bite, I wanted to look at one of the early reviews of Wuthering Heights. This is actually by an anonymous writer. Um, we don't know who wrote it. Uh, writing for the Examiner. Uh, this appeared in the uh, January 8th edition. So anonymous, this was like the Twitter egg of the time. <laughs> Wuthering Heights, a novel by Ellis Bell in three volumes, London, 1847. This is a strange book. It is not without evidences of considerable power, but as a whole, it is wild, confused, disjointed, and improbable. And the people who make up the drama, which is tragic enough in its consequences, are savages ruder than those who lived before the days of Homer. This Heathcliff may be considered as the hero of the book, if a hero there be. He is an incarnation of evil qualities, implacable hate, ingratitude, cruelty, falsehood, selfishness, and revenge. He exhibits, moreover, a certain stoical endurance in early life, which enables him to bide his time and nurse up his wrath till it becomes mature and terrible. And there is one portion of his nature, one only, wherein he appears to approximate to humanity. Now, the reviewer there is referring, of course, to his love for Catherine. If this book be, as we apprehend it is, the first work of the author, we hope that he will produce a second, giving himself more time in its composition than in the present case, developing his incidents more carefully, eschewing exaggeration and obscurity, and looking steadily at human life under all its moods for those pictures of the passions that he may desire to sketch for our public benefit. 
it may be well also to be sparing of certain oaths and phrases, which do not materially contribute to any character, and are by no means to be reckoned among the evidences of a writer's genius. We detest the affectation and effeminate frippery, which is but too frequent in the modern novel, and willingly trust ourselves with an author who goes at once fearlessly into the moors and desolate places for his heroes. But we must, at the same time, stipulate with him that he shall not drag into light all that he discovers, of coarse and loathsome in his wanderings but simply so much good and ill as he may find necessary to elucidate his history, so much only as may be interwoven inextricably with the persons whom he professes to paint. So, yeah. This guy thinks the novel is a little too racy. A little too racy, yeah. A little too manly. You know, not, it's not that, it's not that womanly literature that shrinks away from depictions of unpleasantness, but, you know, maybe, maybe, he could tone it down a bit. This <laughs> mysterious Ellis Bell, this, this, this rugged man documenting the ills of humanity, should probably tone it down a bit. That was, th that was sort of the sentiment of one of the early reviews. Yes, Daniel, you have your hand up? Yeah, I, I found a page, a website full of re contemporary reviews. And, and there's a line here I like from one of the reviews. I won't read the whole thing, just one sentence. This is from Douglas Gerald's weekly newspaper, uh, published on January 15, 1848. There seems to us great power in this book, but a purposeless power, which we feel a great desire to see turned to better account. I really like that quote. I think it hits the nail on the head. <laughs> <laughs> so now... This is a segment that I'm going to call Miss Charlotte's Miscellany. And the purpose of this segment is to give me a chance to revisit something that we discussed in a previous episode that I have then had some time to do a little bit more reading and uh, come up with something that is just kind of a neat observation. And then we can discuss it just a, a tiny bit. I won't stretch the segment out too long. Also, the particular example that I picked for this one is kind of a goofy one. Well, you know, we eschew Goofy on this show. Oh, yes, we're 100% serious here. It's very, <laughs> we're very serious. There's an article by Thomas J. Judry entitled, Well, we must be for ourselves in the long run, Selfishness and Sociality in Withering Heights. Sort of the thesis of Judry's article is that Withering Heights can be organized around the principle of selfishness. To what degree are people in Withering Heights selfish? And to what degree selfishness is read as a vice or a virtue? Like, at what point does self-assuredness become selfishness? At what point does one become self-absorbed to the detriment of others? And this is what he has to say about Linton Heathcliff. In the context of discussing Linton's frailty and illness, readers have long yielded to a seductively simple answer. Pthysis which is a, another term for consumption. So this is all, this is going to be a direct quote from the, from the article. Little Linton's pallid countenance, wasting cough, and weak constitution all mark him as a victim of chronic pulmonary tuberculosis. And yet, doubt lingers. British Literary Convention, in contradistinction to sociological data, held that consumption was an ailment peculiar to women. In addition, Linton lacks many of the crucial indicators of tuberculosis. Clarity of mind, delusion of health, bright eyes. 
These are the conventional and strangely absent symptoms of the disease. Where he's leading up to with this, quote, We might ask, then, whether Linton Heathcliff's symptoms might be code for a more sinister scourge. Linton Heathcliff is, I propose, an onanist or chronic masturbator. I see Andrew giving a what-the-fuck face at the moment. And yeah, that was kind of my reaction when I first read that passage, but I think Judry puts a pretty seductive argument forward, not so much saying that, you know, Emily Bronte was deliberately writing Linton as, you know, effete and weak because he just spends all day masturbating. What Judy is suggesting is that we can read Linton as a chronic masturbator, or at the very least, that he is described in very similar terms to the way that the medical community, you know, such as it was in the 19th century, talked about chronic masturbators. The medical depiction of the onanist, which is an old-timey term for a chronic masturbator, was that they were physically weak, effeminate, selfish, self-absorbed, narcissistic. They were idle, they were indolent. The idea being that the constant emission of semen to, to no particular end was just enervating them, just sucking the energy and the health right out of them, was kind of the medical consensus. So when authors wanted in the 19th century to indicate that a particular character is just a kind of a waste of a human being, just kind of a piece of shit, they would hint at this particular constellation of symptoms. And whether there's intention or not on Emily Bronte's part, we can at the very least say that she would have known characters like this described. Whether or not they were specifically characterized as chronic masturbators, they, there still would have been a whole discourse of the lazy, indolent, layabout young man who, who wastes away and dies and the medical literature of the time would have connected that with the maniacal onanist. So I think that there's a little bit of weight to Jodry's argument, as bizarre as it might sound, just on, on first glance. One thing that I did want to bring up that is relevant to a discussion we had before, we were talking a little bit about the sugar stick that Linton is sucking on in, in one scene. And so this is actually in a footnote about the sugar stick. Francis Gross defines sugar stick as the virile member in a classical dictionary of the vulgar tongue from 1796. Although this sense is not recorded in the OED, a note in an 1807 edition of the Urquhart Moteur translation of Rabelais, Book 1, Chapter 39, suggests that the term was regarded as feminine slang. And this is a quote from the Rabelais translation. The Italian cazzo, what our Mary translator calls sometimes the carnal trap stick, though our ladies call it their sugar stick. The sugar stick is his penis, is, is what the yeah, footnote. Yeah. What? Wait, what year did they say that reference was from? The reference, two of them. So one is from Francis Gross's A Classical Dictionary of the Vulgar Tongue, 1796. Yeah. Uh, the other yeah. comes from an 1807 translation of Rabelais. Okay. So if uh, Emily Bronte was using this, she's basically using 50-year-old slang. Just, I just want us to think in our context. So 1920, sorry, 2020 to like, was that? I can't math tonight. 1980? Radical dude. 
1970s? Oh, what was slang in the 90s? Keep on trucking. Yeah, daddy Oh, I think you have a point. <laughs> Nobody would use 50-year-old slang. I'm just, no, I'm just saying, we still use some of it, but like, I don't know. I will point out, academics love doing this, like bringing up really f- sort of almost f- facetious arguments and observations in footnotes. It's a very sort of, oh, perhaps appropriately, self-indulgent thing that we academics like to do sometimes. So we can kind of take this footnote with a little bit of a grain of salt. And I kind of feel like, I mean, I haven't talked to the guy, but I feel like Thomas Jodry is inviting us to see this as just sort of a, a facetious coincidental connection. But mm-hmm. this is Miss Charlotte's miscellany, and there's there's room for just neat little micro observations. I think Daniel might have had a micro observation. Yeah, you had your hand up? Yeah, I mean... If this theory is correct, it really changes the context of a lot of the scenes in the book. (laughs) Like when Linton and Kathy are supposed to meet halfway between Wuthering Heights and Thrushcross Strange, and he only makes it like a little bit. (laughs) Now we think it's not because he was so weak. It's just he's like, this is the longest I can go without masturbating. And he just had to sit down on that rock. (laughs) Or it makes, you know, the time where Kathy is stuck in the room with him for two weeks watching him die is so much more horrifying when you just think that he was just going at it the entire time. He's he's basically Louis C.K.ing her the entire time. No. (laughs) No, I don't like this thing. It has a happier ending than than our contemporary version of that story. I don't know why I brought this up. So, so there is no such thing as a chron- like chronic masturbating. Oh no, syndrome. absolutely not. Asking for a friend. Was, oh, he's asking for a friend. Invention. Oh, thank this God. Was, this oh, was an invention oh. of the medical profession. Really worried. Like they were grasping at straws here. Oh, grasping at something. Oh, oh. <laughs> I feel. I feel disgusted by with myself. Okay. Anyway. This was wholly invented by the medical professionals of the day. Later on in the 19th century, especially, they went pretty wild with their theories on masturbation, not so much to the physical condition. By the late 19th century, once we have sort of psychology evolving as more of a a discourse, it became the root of a whole bunch of like psychological conditions and, and syndromes. Well, it's it's actually also the reason why so many North American men born in the 1940s through the 1980s are circumcised compared to other countries. They also started doing some much worse things to women. Yep. Went far beyond just circumcision. That's that's another I'm not going to get into it on the podcast. Readers, that's your that that's your gross homework if you're that interested is 19th century treatment of chronic masturbators. And on that happy note. It's not just like wearing mittens then? You probably spiked or electrified mittens. <laughs> I think we're on to the uh, cathartic pop quiz. We are. Last cathartic pop quiz of Wuthering Heights. This is this is momentous. Okay, everyone ready? Mm-hmm. As ready as I'm going to be, yeah. What plants do Harriton and Kathy dig up at Wuthering Heights? Andrew? Current and berry bushes, referred to as shrubs later on. Uh, what kind of berries? Somebody else other than Andrew for a, for a bonus point? Mm. Judy? Gooseberries. Gooseberries. So Andrew, I'm giving you two points, and Judy, you're getting a bonus point for that. Mm. And which of those two were, quote, the apple of Joseph's eye? <laughs> oh. Judy? The black currant trees. Yeah, the black currant trees. 
to me, it's weird that you'd use the phrase the apple of apple, someone's eye yeah. to describe anything other than an apple. It's just a really poor chosen phrase. But anyway. It's, it's Nellie Dean who chooses that phrase, so. Yeah, well, you know what I think of Nellie Dean. Hmm. What does Kathy stick in Harriton's porridge? Sugar stick? No. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel, is that a hand? Yeah, I know it's not going to be specific enough, but it's like a kind of flower. It is a kind of flower. I'll give you two points because it was off the dome, off the top of your head. But can anyone tell me what specific flower? Yes. Emmy? Uh, primroses. Correct. And actually, I'm going to give you... I'm going to give you two points for that bonus because primroses are a little bit significant. And this is... I'm going to see if I can find a more period-appropriate source because this is... I've referred to it before. Uh, Kate Greenaway's Language of Flowers, which was published a bit later. It was published in the 1880s. So this might be anachronistic, but it's just... It's the flower manual that I have at hand. Primroses can mean early youth, but evening primroses and red primroses have two different meanings. Evening primroses symbolize inconstancy, but red primroses symbolize unpatronized merit. Hmm. Perhaps symbolic of Harriton, the merit that has never been patronized properly. He's never been allowed to blossom. <laughs> Am I the only one who finds that neat? The the blossom pun or No, that that makes sense. <laughs> I got to say it makes it makes a lot more sense than the chronic masturbation thing. Fuck it, we're moving on. How would Joseph uh rather earn his bite and sup? Daniel? Is it wandering around and doing odd jobs? Yeah, I'll give you a point. I was looking for the the, the specific. There'll all be there'll oh. also be some bonus points for oh, whoever oh. can do it in a convincing Yorkshire accent. Oh, Andrew, fuck, I cannot do it in a convincing Yorkshire accent. He said he mentioned he he'd earn, rather earn his bite and sup with a hammer in the road. Does that mean he's going to be a tinker? Is that what he meant? Is that what he meant? Because that to my like that's what comes to mind when I hear or a highway bandit who attacks people with a hammer. <laughs> your money or your life i mean it could just mean handyman like daniel said but i wonder if it means tinker because then it's then it's also a bit of a racialized reference i'd say rather than tinker it's just a common laborer mm. roads at the time they weren't paved um but one thing that you could do was put a lot of gravel down on the road and after being impacted over years by carriages passing over it it would flatten out a bit so you had to break a lot of rocks to pave, well, not pave, but to, to surface roads. Oh, okay. Oh, so he really meant like, like working like in the road. Oh yeah, swinging that hammer. No, that wasn't like an allusion to like being a, like walking around traveling. No, I'm pretty sure he just literally means I'd rather pick up a fucking hammer and smash rocks all day than have to put up with this this treatment. What are some of the places Heathcliff sees Catherine Earnshaw's face? Andrew? You mean aside from Harriton's face? Because uh, he does mention that. It is one place, yes. That's not what you're looking for, though. I'll tell you what. I will give you a point for that. There are a few different places, so anyone else just chime in. There's a whole list of places where Heathcliff sees Catherine's face. Just, just throw them out there? Yeah. Porridge. Kathy's, little Kathy's face. Senior Catherine's actual face when he digs up her grave. Um. <laughs> Wait, porridge? Really? I do not remember that. I mean, he's just staring at his porridge and... 
Are you bullshitting me right now, Daniel? I really don't remember that being one of the places that Heathcliff sees Catherine. I mean, I was speculating. Okay, well, fuck. You don't speculate in the in the cathartic pop quiz section. <laughs> All right, well, that's my misunderstanding. Yeah. Minus two points. Where are some of the non-porridgey places? <laughs> I'll make it easier for you. It's in the passage beginning with five minutes ago, Harriton seemed a personification of my youth. Personification of my youth. Mm. Oh, jeez. Also, just arbitrarily, you get one each. So, Andrew, you got yours. All right, the flags. Daniel, you blew your chance on the fucking porridge. What? But I said more than one. What? All right. Okay. I've uh, got the flagstones of the floor. That. Andrew. You called. Don't talk over Emmy. You called on me before Daniel talked. Emmy, go ahead. In every cloud, in every tree, filling the night, air at night. Emmy, you. You, oh. you only got one each. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Fuck it. This question is a disaster. I'm moving on. <laughs> what concept? Oh, sorry. I didn't give you a chance, Judy. Do you have one? <laughs> what didn't you say, <laughs> yeah. Emmy? Um, a tree glimpse in every object by day. I am surrounded with her image. Most ordinary faces of men and women, the entire world, basically. Sure, I'll give you a point. <laughs> we all get a point. Okay, that was supposed to be a fun freebie where everyone could just get a point if they could use the find function on their e-reader or whatever. But we, uh, what consequence does Nellie imagine might come from the way Heathcliff has spent the past three days? So this is during his little starvation session. So three days in. You know, the fact that Heathcliff isn't eating in this portion of the book, I think, really ties into my porridge theory. <laughs> Could give him, like, a good reason to not want to eat that porridge. Daniel, saying, I swear to Christ, <laughs> let the porridge go. Andrew? Does she not think he'll catch a bad cold or a fever? As if all is walking out of doors? Oh, yeah, that's, that's worth a point. There's a specific reference that she uses. Monomania? She does accuse him of that, doesn't she? Uh, that's worth a point. The, the one mm. that I was looking for... I I oh, Judy, do you have it? Might mm -hmm. knock up a titan? Yes! The way you've passed these three days might knock up a titan. Now, what does it mean to knock up in that context? Probably not impregnate. No, not to impregnate. <laughs> I think it's still used dialectically in parts of Britain to be knocked Knock on, up like, in that sense. Be like flat on your back. Daniel, you have. Oh, uh, I was going to say the same thing. It just means to be stricken with some sort of health problem. Like if you have a bad cold, you can be knocked up with a bad cold. How many years uh, has Heathcliff, according to Nellie Dean, lived a selfish, unchristian life? Andrew? Lucky 13. No. Oh no, so no wait, wait. Uh, my notes uh, was imprecise. Oh, someone else take that. Yeah, I'm gonna give you a, give you a negative one point. Cause you uh, fucked up. Who wants to who wants to give the Oh, I don't remember how old he is now. Yeah, you gotta do some math. When did he oh, die again? Like, since he was thirteen. Thirteen. But what He's forty something, isn't he? You know, I'm going to give myself minus two points because I actually forgot to write down how old Heathcliff was when he died, and now I forget. 
And it doesn't actually say it in the last chapter unless it does it in some weird old timey way that I can't search. Oh, you know what? I just happened to Google and someone has very helpfully uh, written a blog <laughs> post with the timelines of everyone's births and deaths um, in Wuthering Heights. So. Wow. Hey, Google. How old was Heathcliff when he died in Wuthering Heights? Wuthering Heights. Oh, she's it's 37. I think Google should get some negative. <laughs> I was hoping she would say it and then it could be like a thing on the podcast, but it didn't work. Sorry, podcast listeners. Joke didn't land the way I wanted it okay, to. Okay, so Daniel, I'm giving you a point for getting Google to answer the question for us. Um, so I guess whoever raises their hand and does the math quickest. Wait, 37? Yeah. 37 seems so young. Yeah, people didn't live as long back then. Is it 24? Yeah, 24, since he was 13 years old. When Nellie asks if Heathcliff wants a minister to give him his, you know, little deathbed conversion moment, Heathcliff claims he is, quote, rather obliged than angry. Why is that? Andrew? It reminds him of the way he wants to be, he wants to be buried, and I guess prompts him to give her the correct instructions. Yeah. So two points to Andrew. Some bonus points. Does anyone remember how Heathcliff wants to be buried? Daniel? He wants to be buried on the other side of Kathy with half a door open. <laughs> yep. Wants his coffin right up next to Kathy's with a little trap door so that it'll fall away once the, the coffin's in the grave so they can, I don't know, snuggle each other's skeletons for all time. You're so fucking weird, Heathcliff. Two points, Daniel. Yeah, it's yeah, it weird that he doesn't believe like in Christianity, but he still believes in an afterlife. Other religions have afterlives, too. Yeah, but he doesn't believe in any religion. It seems. At least. Believes in ghosts. What is Joseph's response to finding Heathcliff's body? And big bonus points if you can. Well, the, the, you get the Joseph bonus if you do it in a Yorkshire accent. Even if it's a bad Yorkshire accent. Just. I don't want to try. I want to try, but I can't find the passage. You don't have to if you do not wish to. The option is open for you. So, wait, wait, wait. Is that the, sorry, we're, I've been distracted by the accent thing. What was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> what is Joseph's response to finding Heathcliff's body? The devil's harried off his soul. <laughs> oh, man. Devil. Devil. Has everyone found that, that passage? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Emmy, I'm going to give you... I've been given a lot of two-pointers. I'll just keep it going. Two points. And another two points if somebody wants to take a stab at the Yorkshire accent. <laughs> I'll do it just because I need the points. Okay, go ahead, Daniel. <clears throat> I'm not. I, I'm not good at doing it. Please, if anybody from Yorkshire is listening, please forgive me. I just need the points. <laughs> the devil's harried off. He, oh God, it's so bad. The devil's harried off his soul. And he may have his carcass into a bargain for aught I care. Eck, what a wicked one he looks, gurning at death. And the old sinner grinned in... Oh, sorry, that's part of the... <laughs> okay, Daniel, I am what? going to give you two points. That was not a Yorkshire accent. That was... It certainly wasn't. It was more of a pirate. <laughs> thing, a yeah. bit of Irish in there at one point. Yeah. Uh, have his carcass into the so, bargain? For the listeners at home... Yar! Yorkshire is not quite at the extreme northeast of England, but it's close to the extreme northeast. The piratey accent is from Cornwall, which is at the extreme southwest of England. So 
you're about as you're almost as geographically far from Yorkshire as you can get with your attempted accent, Daniel. But you still get the points. It was a brave attempt. Just for fun, how it would actually sound. The devil sarried off his soul, he cried, and may have his carcass in toot bargain for aught I care. Ugh, what a wicked and he looks gurning at death. Oh, pretty good. Impressive. Mm. Last question. Who will live in Wuthering Heights once Catherine and Harriton move to Thrushcross Grange? Uh, Daniel? Joseph? I'll give you a point. There's also some speculation on Nellie Dean's part. Who else might be joining? Joseph. A lad to keep him company. A lad to keep him company. Yeah, because you wouldn't want him becoming a chronic masturbator. <laughs> okay, Daniel, do you have something to, else to say? Something else useful to say? If no one else is going to say it, there's, there's another answer. Heathcliff and Kathy's ghosts. That's true. It does say, it even says that, doesn't it? Like, because, yeah, no, um, Lockwood says it. For the use of such ghosts as choose to inhabit. You know what, Daniel? That was, that was a cool last minute observation. I'll give you another two points. Okay. Shall we tally up? The final cathartic pop quiz? Yes, please. Okay, wow. So this is not just a tight race for first place, but a pretty close, pretty even spread for all numbers. We've got a total spread of six, seven, eight, and nine points. First place, somehow, Daniel with nine points. Second place, Andrew with eight points. Third place, Emmy with seven points. And last place, Judy with six points. For the very last episode, the dunce cap is yours. <laughs> now, there's no reader response for next, for next oh, class yeah. because uh, we're, we're finished the novel. It's going to be our wrap-up episode, so... That's right. Great. No assignment of homework, none of that stuff. Um, Yay. We're so what chapters should we read? It does mean that one of you got away with not doing a final presentation. Who was that? It was... It was Judy. Oh yeah, I only did two. You managed to dodge doing a... Kept wanting to give it to you when you weren't here. So... You know what? Everyone has homework for, for next week, so... I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll just take that opportunity to give Judy an extra grade so that we're all, you've all had three chances to get your, your yeah. average. Sounds good. Yeah. Is it the book? Or whatever book? we call it. Yeah. Just, just your, oh, what, what should we call it? I, I don't really understand what the book report's supposed to, like what material we should have. Because surely we've said almost everything there is to say at this yeah. point about whether it's. Well, I, I think. I think what uh, what Ms. Charlotte is saying is she wants our overall reaction, like, because we also had expectations going in, perhaps. And, you know, were those expectations satisfied? What do we think? Like, we've just been sort of going through chapter by chapter, but I don't think we've, we've we haven't said what we think of the novel. Like, do we think it's well written? Do we think it's well written, but crap? Do we think it's poorly written, but good? Like, there are all these sort of, and it's, I think it's, it's kind of interesting to get everyone's sort of impression in that regard. Yeah, don't don't overthink it. This is a chance for you to give your candid feelings on Wuthering Heights as a whole. We could call it the candid book report. 
the canon why don't, why review. Don't we, why don't we say Let's that? Let's say review. Oh, oh, yes. Good one. Good one, Emmy. The candid review. All right. So next week, everyone bring your candid review of Wuthering Heights. Well, that concludes our 11th episode and our chapter-by-chapter reading of Wuthering Heights. Next episode, we'll return with a slightly different format as we look back on the entire book and try to figure out what we took away from it and what it took away from us. Hardisons. Um, I'd like to thank Ms. Charlotte Sampson for at least not selling us into gladiatorial training and for guiding us through this book. It was a reference to something I said at the beginning that you've probably all forgotten by now. I would be remiss if I failed to thank my fellow readers, Daniel Witches, Emmy Doe, and Jody Ito. Daniel, by the way, has his own podcast called Weird Movie Club, which features a character called The Leg, who Daniel keeps locked in the attic. Go have a listen to it. Just Google Weird Movie Club. Do it now. Uh, thanks to Ryo Namigaya for allowing us to thank her. Also, thanks to Akihiro Akane, who composed our theme tune. We have links to him in the show notes. The show is edited by me. Uh, and finally, thanks to you, our listeners. If you've stuck with us this far, man, you are a true friend. Cue the Randy Newman music. If you want to support our podcast with your hard-earned yen, dollars, pounds, or koku, head over to the Yokohama Theatre Group webpage at ytg.jp and click the support button to make a one-time donation. Or better yet, at this point, leave a five-star review on iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Spotify or the podcast platform of your choice or my choice I don't care whose choice it is but as the song goes and listen if you can't say anything real nice it's better not to talk at all that's my advice and finally thanks to Emily Bronte who apparently thinks she's far too cool for just one genre we'll be back in one week's time for our wrap up episode 12 check the show notes see you then class dismissed there we go Go out tomorrow if I can borrow a coat to wear. I'll be at the height of smart style with my sincere smile and my dancing bear. It's a Randy Newman song. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm sledding that I roll. Assumed that was, I assumed that was the one that you were referring to. Uh, no, it was the one from Toy Story. <laughs> <laughs>